Good morning and welcome to Cornerstone, where we inspire and equip you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, knowing that following Jesus makes life better, makes you better at life, and brings glory to God in the process. That's right. So welcome to Cornerstone on site. You can see our schedule at cornerstonenh.org slash calendar. And some of you will be watching online in the weeks to come on Sunday mornings or at any time and any place on demand. So welcome to all of you. And especially for those of you who might be new, I would encourage you to let us know who you are. We really want to know how to serve you best. And you can let us know how to do that by uh, texting the word new to 603-225-2550. I'm always up for a good Star Wars reference in my messages. And so this week as I was studying and preparing, I was thinking about the opening scenes of the original Star Wars movie. How many of you saw the original Star Wars in the theaters? in the theaters when it first came out. All right, all the old people are raising their hands. Uh, so um, yes, I, uh, I loved that movie from the s- time I saw it. Uh, I was seven years old. No, wait, nine years old. Nine years old when I saw it for the first time, so you can do the math. And, um, and in the opening scene, when you're introduced to Darth Vader, this awesome, scary figure. And the first time you see him choking someone, he's doing it old school with his hands, not with a force choke. Uh, And he is looking for the plans to the Death Star. And he asks the rebel who he is holding up and his feet are dangling uh, because he's protesting, the rebel is, that this is is just a, a consular ship on a diplomatic mission. And so Darth Vader, says, if this is a consulship, where is the ambassador? And then he breaks his neck and throws him against the wall and, and commands that the stormtroopers tear the ship apart and find those plans. Where is the ambassador? That's the question. And when it comes to us today, we, as followers of Jesus, for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, you are supposed to be ambassadors. You are ambassadors of your faith. But sometimes we don't do that. We hold back or we're ineffective. And why do we do that? Well, nobody likes to be ineffective. You don't like to do something if you're not good at it. Are you going to be embarrassed? Are you going to be caught out? Uh, Last night, we were going to Tropical Smoothie to pick up a smoothie for my daughter whose throat was, was sore. And so Sue Ellen and I went there. I've never been before, never ordered anything there. And so when we were pulling up, I said, why don't you just go in because you've been there before, you've ordered before. And she said, that's such a five, Sue Ellen says, that's such a five thing to do. She's talking about Enneagram fives, which is what I am, which is the investigator, which means we like to find out everything we can about everything that we're interested in. And if we talk about something, it's usually because we've studied it, we've read the books, we've done the research, and so we know what we're talking about. Now, I was just thinking that this was a very logical way to approach it because she's been there before. She knows what Livy likes to order. I have never been there before. I don't know what Livy likes. I just thought it was logical. But she saw in that that I didn't want to go into a situation where I didn't know what I was doing. And if it had been by myself, I would have figured it out. I would have done it. But that's true. And, and I don't think that's unique to me or to Enneagram 5s. I think we generally don't want to go into a situation where we don't know what we're doing, where a situation is unfamiliar, where we feel like we might not be up to the task. And when it comes to being an ambassador for our faith, to speak about our faith, especially in hostile or unknown circumstances, then that insecurity, that not uh, feeling like you know exactly what you are getting into, that question about whether you would have the answers that are needed or if you're going to be able to effectively present your faith and talk about your faith, that can cause us to hold back. And therefore, the question comes up sometimes, where's the ambassador? 
Where are the ambassadors that are going to be winsome and effective in communicating about our faith? Because that's what we are called to do. So let me tell you the story of how I uh, came to talk about this. You know, I'm kind of in this transition period. We were finishing up a series on the Psalms and figuring out what to do. I'm figuring out what to do next. And last week when we looked at Psalm 145, this was the bottom line that for, uh, we are going to be unleashed, our, our tongues are going to be unleashed when we have something to talk about. And when we experience God as powerful, good, and available, then we have something to talk about and we just kind of naturally talk about it. And in fact, that's what's supposed to happen because Jesus just describing this is the way things are going to work in Acts 1.8 said this, you will be my witnesses telling people everywhere. That's, that's what we do. We are ambassadors. We're supposed to be telling people about Jesus everywhere. A witness is just someone who tells what they have seen and experienced. And I tied that into our objectives for this year. That uh, The last one on the list is to rally around the mission. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about what makes a great church. A great church has a great commitment to the great commission and the great commandment. Well, the great commission is to go and make disciples. So we, as a church body, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to be ambassadors. We're supposed to be a people who are on mission. So my question is, and maybe the question that you have, is how can I be a faithful and effective in the mission God has for me. Ultimately, we're here talking about effectiveness. And if you're going to be effective, you have to understand the nature of the mission, how to accomplish the mission, and how you're going to go about it. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. How can I be effective? And we're going to look at a very famous passage, which I'm going to suggest to you, suggest this. That is that a spiritual battle calls for spiritual weapons. A spiritual battle calls for spiritual weapons. I find that when I encounter difficulty or trouble or trials, my first instinct is to try to do something, to act. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if I don't understand the nature of the problem, then I am not going to be able to effectively act in that situation. So this passage that we're talking about is dealing with the nature of the, of the problem, the nature of the struggle that we are in, and that informs our approach and how we determine how we can be effective in it as well. So let's look at it together. Uh, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in this passage. I'm going to kind of focus in on a couple of highlights. You could easily spend, I could easily spend a whole year preaching through this passage. There's so much in here. But just listen, I'm going to read the whole thing because I want you to have the big context. This is the well-known passage that talks about the armor of God. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. The book of Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. And he is wrapping up the letter. This is part, main part, the main part of his conclusion. This is what it says. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in the power and in his mighty power put on all of god's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places therefore Put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. 
for shoes. Put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am mindful that as I come to you in prayer at this time of the message almost every week, that this is not perfunctory. This is not just something that we do out of habit. In this passage, we are reminded that our battle is a spiritual battle, and the main application that you give is that we should pray. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would help all of us to hear exactly what we need to hear from you. And then, as the biblical definition of hearing implies, that we will do something with it, that we'll know exactly what you would have us to do in response to what we hear today and give us the courage, boldness, and initiative that we will act on it so that we will see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we will see ourselves walking in those good deeds, those good works that you have prepared for us, and we will see ourselves becoming the masterpiece, the workmanship that you have in mind. Lord, we pray this for us individually, for our families, for our church, for your church in this area and around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in this passage on spiritual warfare, on the armor of God, we see that a spiritual battle calls for spiritual weapons. So let's look at that a little bit piece by piece. The first thing is that we have to understand the nature of the battle that we are in. We are in a spiritual battle. So again, I said this is the conclusion of the letter. The Apostle Paul is wrapping it up. And he says a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So what does it look like to be strong in the Lord? And here, as you might have noticed, if you listen carefully, the Apostle Paul is in chains. He is in prison. And so there's suge the suggestion that as he's writing this letter, he could have looked up and seen a Roman guard in his armor. And he uses that and what he knows of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, because there are a lot of allusions in this passage to passages in the Hebrew scriptures, and kind of molds them together in his mind to describe what it's like to be fully outfitted for God's work. And it's a spiritual work. So he says in the next verse, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. We are in a battle. We have an enemy. Our enemy is the devil. Some people have a problem with picturing a personal spiritual embodiment of evil in Satan. For those of us that grew up with that idea, it's usually not a problem, but many people do. But if you think about if God is the um, embodiment, the, the, the fullness of goodness and holiness, then it wouldn't be unsurprising to find that there is an opposite and an opposed power in the spiritual realms, and that's what the enemy is. And so we have an enemy that is trying to destroy us. 
the, Jesus taught us the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But God's plan for us, Jesus' purpose in coming was that we might have life and have it abundantly. So we have the strategies of the devil. There's somebody out to get you in the spiritual world. But what is our protection and against that? It is the armor of God. And with the armor of God, we're able to stand against the strategies of the devil. But the main point that he is making in this whole passage is that we are in a spiritual battle and therefore that calls for spiritual weapons. So he goes on to kind of drive that point home as he's getting into it. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is just a bunch of different ways of talking about what I've highlighted there, that this is an, these are unseen powers in an unseen world, a world that is just as real as the things that you can touch, taste, and feel, but it's not flesh and blood. It is, they are powers in the unseen world. And this is a helpful thing for us to remember, that whenever we lock eyes with someone, we are, we are, we are never going to be locking eyes with our enemy because our enemies are not flesh and blood. We might encounter opposition. People might treat us like enemies, but it's helpful for us to remember that our enemy, our ultimate opposition is not flesh and blood. And that helps us from demonizing our enemies. And think about that phrase for just a second. It's somebody who's opposed to you, somebody that you have opposition against. And what does they say? We're turning them into a spiritual, evil, demonic being. We treat them like that. That's what it means to demonize your enemies. As opposed to recognizing that there are demons but, and they are our true enemies. People can be deceived, they can be in opposition, they can do evil things, but ultimately we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. So he's defining the nature of the battle. It's a spiritual battle. And that leads us to the next point, which is that a spiritual battle calls for spiritual weapons. We fight with spiritual weapons. Now, remember I said I wasn't going to go a deep dive on this, so I'm going to skip past several of the elements to come to the conclusion as he's describing the spiritual armor. In verse 17, he gets to the head, to the helmet. He says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So much of what he has been describing is protective armor to this point. And he yeah, he, he brings it to the culmination with the helmet, which protects your head, one of your most, the vital parts of your body. And he says, salvation acts like a helmet to, to this important part of your body, that you are rescued, that you are redeemed, you have been adopted and put into God's family. You've been made a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And because you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of God, there is protection in that. And then he shifts to the one offensive piece of equipment that he mentions, the sword, which he equates with God's Holy Spirit. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When a person says yes to Jesus, God comes and resides in that person, in the person of the Holy Spirit, who gives us different desires and a different power, the desire to do God's will and the ability to accomplish it. And the sword of the Spirit, it describes, equates with 
the word of God. Now, when we think of the word of God, we generally think of the Bible, and that's completely legitimate. Often in the scriptures, when it's referring to the word of God, it's focusing more in on the gospel. Now, the gospel is the core message of the Bible, and therefore, when we talk about the word of God, we're talking about the gospel. When we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the word of God, but that's what he's talking about. He's saying this message about Jesus is your ultimate weapon when it comes to doing battle in our world. When you tell the story and message of Jesus, you are wielding the word of God in the power of the spirit, and that's what does damage to the enemy and his hold over people and rescues people from his hold. So we are describing ultimately a spiritual battle. Because it's a spiritual battle, it calls for spiritual weapons. And because they are spiritual weapons, they are wielded with the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight in the Spirit's power. A spiritual battle calls for spiritual weapons wielded in the power of the Spirit. So, after describing uh, the that we have a spiritual battle, that we need weapons and protection that is suited for a spiritual battle, he's then going to make this one application. How do we, how do we act? How do we do battle? How do we engage the enemy in this spiritual battle? And in the next verse, he gives this answer. We pray. He says, Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Last week in Psalm 45, because it was talking about such an all-encompassing experience, I underlined all the alls and everys. And so in this verse, I'm going to do the exact same thing. He says, look, every battle that you engage, every difficulty that you encounter all the opposition that is coming your way, there is one appropriate way to respond that's universal and applicable in all these occasions. Now, you might do some different things along the way, but this one is good to go no matter what. You can reach for this tool in your toolkit, and that is to pray in the spirit. What does that mean? If you are familiar with or come from a a Pentecostal or charismatic background, you might be thinking about speaking in tongues or something like that. But I I think ultimately in this context, what it's talking about is just praying in the power of the spirit. You're in a spiritual realm. Uh, You are praying in the spirit, which means that you are praying with the power of the spirit. And when should you do this? When do, when, do you, when do you pull this tool out? When do you make this application? All times and every occasion. And then he goes on. Stay alert and persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. So what's the situation? Doesn't matter. This is what you do, all situations, all times, every occasion. And who should you be praying for and where? Well, how about all believers, all your brothers and sisters everywhere? This is the main application. We're doing spiritual battle, so let's engage in the spiritual battle with the spiritual weapons that God has given us. And how do we do that? We pray. Now, notice what he says there, to stay alert and persistent, alert. One of my favorite ways of applying this is uh, what I heard in, when I was doing the study in experiencing God. When you pray, pay attention to what happens next. You know, if you really expect that God is going to answer your prayers and you are putting out a request asking for deliverance, asking for insight, asking for direction, then God wants to answer that prayer. So pay attention to what happens next. Even this week, as I was preparing this message, deciding what I was going to pray, what I was going to speak about, 
I prayed about it, and I immediately after that, what came to mind was an article that I had read based on this passage that highlighted a, the, what's actually the third point in today's message. And I, as I noticed that, I was alert, I prayed, and then I paid attention to what happened next, and then kind of thought about that and followed down that rabbit trail. That's what began and became this message. And I can't tell you how many times that has happened. I pray something and then pause. Pay attention to what happens next. Who comes to mind? What thought comes to mind? What uh, circumstance happens right after that. We believe that God is active and eager to answer your prayers. So when you pray, pay attention to what happens next. And then when it comes to persistence, uh, I love the passage in Luke 18 where Jesus is teaching about prayer. He starts, the, the passage starts out and the author of the gospel, Luke, tells us helpfully that the purpose of this parable, this story that Jesus was telling, was that we should always pray and never give up. Always pray and never give up. And then Jesus goes on to tell the story of the unjust judge where this woman needed deliverance from her oppressors, so she goes to the judge. But this judge is a study in contrast when it comes to God because unlike God, who is a righteous and good judge, this judge doesn't care about people and doesn't fear God, the, 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 the scripture tells us. And yet this woman is coming to him for justice. And when she doesn't get justice the first time, she goes back the second time. And when she doesn't get justice the second time, she goes back the third time. She just constantly is pestering this judge to take her case, to hear her case, and to do something about it. And finally in the story, the judge says, agreeing with his, uh, the description of him earlier, I don't care about people and I don't fear God, but this woman is driving me crazy, so I'm going to give her justice. And this is a study in contrast because Jesus is drawing a comparison in contrast by saying, look, here's a judge that doesn't care about people, doesn't fear God, but even he gave justice to the woman in the end. How much more, then he goes on to say, will God give justice to those who are called out, uh, calling out to him day and night? And then he adds this little, little postscript. But when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And so I draw the conclusion from that that it's much more likely that we will give up, that we will lose heart or lose faith than that God won't come through. If your prayer hasn't been answered yet, that doesn't mean that God's not listening, that he's not there, that he's not powerful, that he doesn't care. It just might mean it's time to be persistent in your prayers. So that's the application that he makes to pray in the spirit, all times, every occasion, alert and persistent for praying for all believers everywhere. And then he pivots, the Apostle Paul does. He's saying, I want you to pray all the time, everywhere for everybody. And he says, but pray also for me too. Uh, I, I've encouraged you to pray. I've told you you're in a spiritual battle, so it only makes sense to fight uh, in the spiritual realm with spiritual tools, at weapons, and uh, in the power of the Spirit. And since you're going to be doing that, here's what I'd like for you to pray for, for me. Now, just think about this for a second. If you had the opportunity to have the entire church praying diligently and fervently for you, all the time, constantly knocking on the gates of heaven on your behalf, what would you be praying for? What would you ask them to pray for? Here's what the Apostle Paul prays. He, uh, prays, he asks that they would pray for three things uh, specifically related to his ministry. This is wh what this article that I told you about earlier was about. It was how to pray for your pastor. And so 
as a pastor and as someone who has the responsibility and privilege of speaking God's word to you every week, I would welcome your praying this for me. But as you'll see, this isn't just for pastors because do you know how many ministers we have at Cornerstone? Do you know how many ministers there are in the church as a whole, God's universal church? It's everybody. We are all ministers. We are all ambassadors. We are all in ministry because we have been called to fulfill the Great Commission. So the Apostle Paul sitting in this jail cell writing these final last words to the church says, if you're going to remember me in prayer, this is what I'd like you to ask of the Lord for me, that he would speak clearly, that he would speak clearly. This is all found in Ephesians 6, 19. It starts out, ask God to give me the right words. It literally says to give utterance. And the emphasis there is on clarity. Uh, this is one of my main aims. This is why I always have one bottom line and why I always say, give you basically usually one word to tell you what we are talking about today because as the famous uh, preaching pastor, teacher, uh, I think it was Hayden Robinson said, a mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pews, right? That's how it works. A mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pews. So we need to speak clearly. And I think that that means clarity, but also it implies tact as well. That you don't want to do anything that is going to hinder or block your message. And what's one of the ways you can hinder or block a message? By being unclear. If you can't explain it in a way that a five-year-old would understand, then you probably have more work in understanding and explaining it. So the Apostle Paul says, this is a message that is so important. I want to make sure that people understand it. So I want to speak clearly. And I don't want there to be any boundary or barrier that people will trip over. So I'm going to use tact. And this is necessary when we think about the next thing that he asked for. He not only asked for clarity, but he also asked to speak courageously. Give me the right words so that I can boldly explain. And he goes on to talk about the gospel. Boldly explain. I looked up what boldly means in the English dictionary. And this is the first definition that comes up. Willing to meet danger or take risk, willing to meet danger or take risk. Now that does not mean seeking danger or living foolishly. It just means that if I'm going to go after, pursue this mission, I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish that mission. So that's why when I see, hear him ask for clarity and for courage, I hear clear, clearly presenting the message and also with tact, boldly presenting the message. There's a difference between brashness and obnoxiousness and boldness. And so I think these two things are held in tension. I want clarity and tact but I also want courage and boldness as well. The idea of having courage really was struck, really struck home to me when I first encountered and noticed this verse in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21.8, it's describing the end of all things. It's the apocalypse. There's a lot more to explain about that, but, um, but this is what it says. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and liars. I just want you to notice, look at the company that cowardice keeps. Look at the company that cowardice keeps. We think, oh, you know, I just wasn't sure. I was just kind of holding back a little bit. It wasn't a big deal. Here, cowards unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and liars, their fate 
is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So what does that say to me? That says to me that, that courage is actually a big deal. That cowardice is from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. So I don't want anything to do with cowardice. I don't like the company that it keeps. But it's important that we be bold. Not brash, not obnoxious, but bold. Willing to take risk, willing to step out in faith. In fact, this is so important to the Apostle Paul that he actually is the one aspect of this prayer that he asks that he comes back to in verse 20. He says, so pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. He says, since you're going to be praying for everyone everywhere, pray for me too. Pray that I will uh, be clear that God will give me utterance and pray that I will be bold and pray that I uh, keep preaching the right message. But by the way, make sure that you pray that I'll keep speaking boldly for him as I should. Now, the third element that he asked for in that verse is this, to speak correctly. He wants to speak clearly. He wants to speak courageously, but he also wants to speak correctly. This is what it says. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan. Now it goes on in the New Living Translation, which is what I read, to explain that a little bit more. That, those, the, the rest of that verse is not literally in there. It's kind of referring back to, the, the translation is referring back to the other parts of the book to give you context and to help you understand what, what uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about. But he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the word of God. And he's saying, I want to be clear. I want to be bold. But what I'm going to be clear and bold about is not my agenda, not a political agenda, not a church agenda, but God's agenda found in the gospel. And so he refers to it as the mystery or the mystery of God or God's mysterious plan. Now, mysterious in used in this context in the scripture, there are several times where the apostle Paul describes the gospel as a mystery. Whatever we may use that word for now, what he is saying is that it was once hidden, but is now revealed. Uh, people didn't understand this aspect of the gospel before, that it was for all people and that it would be accomplished through God's anointed representative, his son. They didn't understand that before. But now with the coming of Jesus, it has been revealed. So it was a mysterious plan in that it was once hidden, but now it is made clear for everyone. That's what it means when the Apostle Paul refers to the mystery of the gospel. But he's saying, I want it to be clear and I want it to be bold. And let me just make it clear. What I'm being clear and bold about is God's plan, the gospel. And that's why it's important for us to be able to clearly explain the gospel. If somebody came up to you and said, okay, I know that you go to church. I know you are a Christian. I know that you follow Jesus. Give me, give me what that means. What, what, what is that all about? Do you, could you explain that in 30 seconds, in three minutes, in 30 minutes? Could you have that kind of conversation? That is one of the reasons why, if we're going to inspire and equip you, I want to equip you in that. That's one of the reasons why you hear me talk about the gospel in very similar terms over and over again on Sunday mornings, because I want you to be able to do the exact same thing. If you've been around for Cornerstone for a little while, you've heard me talk about the three main elements of the gospel. I like to shorthand it as who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means for us, who Jesus is, that he is the son of God. That means that he is fully human and fully man. As a result of that, he is perfect. He never sinned because God cannot sin. God has come in human form in the person of Jesus. So he is perfect. That's who Jesus is. What has he done? He came 
and then he went to the cross and died a death that he did not deserve because since he had never sinned, he did not deserve the punishment of death. But he did so in order that, what it means for us, that we who deserve death could receive the grace for and forgiveness that we could never earn. Who Jesus is, what he did, what it means for us. And therefore, that calls for a response because salvation and rescue from our sin is not automatic. And that's why I talk about saying yes to Jesus and describe what it means to say yes to Jesus because it's based on who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He is the King and he is the Redeemer. And so when you say yes to Jesus, what you are doing is you're saying yes to him in all he is. Since he is the Savior, we, we say yes to him. We're asking for what he did on the cross to count for us. And because he is the king, we are, when we say yes to Jesus, we are saying, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to submit to you. I want you to call the shots. You're going to be the boss in my life. Now, I don't know how long that took, but that was the essence of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means for us, and that what it means for us calls for a response. You hear some version of that every single week. Why? Because there will always be people who have not yet crossed the line of faith who need to hear that and need the opportunity and invitation to do so, but also because I'm equipping you so that when you have an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation, you have the words, you have the outline, you've heard it so much that you should be able to give some version of that clearly and boldly and correctly telling the message of the gospel. Because you, like the Apostle Paul, are an ambassador. In fact, he goes on to say this in verse 20. I'm in chains now, still preaching this message. Even though I am chained, the message is not chained. Even though I am in prison, the message is going everywhere because I'm still proclaiming it. I'm still getting it out. I am still fulfilling my mission as an ambassador or a representative of God's kingdom to the world. Now, is this just for the Apostle Paul because he's an apostle, because he had a special mission from God? No, this is for all of us. And although I didn't put it in your growth guides, I'm going to read to you an extended passage from 2 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul, writing to another church, the one in Corinth, is going back to this idea of what it means to be an ambassador. And this is, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's so succinct. It so perfectly describes the gospel. It's so clearly tells us what our responsibility and response to the gospel should be. Starts out this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This, what's this? This gospel, this story, this message that has been entrusted to us. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Your past is history. And now God is writing a new ending to your story. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God. This is a forgiveness and life that you could never earn, but God has purchased for you with the blood of his son and gifted it to everyone who will receive it. This is a gift from God who bought, brought us back to himself through Christ. And God... Once you have received that gift, you have the responsibility to pass it on. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Who is us? He's talking primarily and firstly about himself, the Apostle Paul, and his companions. But I think he's drawing a wider circle and saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. This is our job. This is our mission. God has given us the, this task of reconciling people to him. And so... 
uh, he succinctly describes the gospel. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us, he emphasizes again, this wonderful message of reconciliation. You have a treasure, the gift of God's power and the ability to change lives, to see lives change, God working his power through you. He has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we, all of us, are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Do you wonder how your friends and family are going to hear God's message? Or do you wonder how, what God's plan is for making things right in a broken world? God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned. See, you hear all the elements of the gospel that I was talking about earlier? To be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right through, with God through Christ. That's the message. That's the gospel. That is our mission. So how we are fighting a spiritual battle how do we do it? We, we fight it in the spiritual realm with spiritual tools empowered by the Spirit. And what's the one application that the Apostle Paul comes back to in that passage in Ephesians? It's this. So pray. Pray. So pray. So pray that I will keep speaking boldly for him as I should. Pray for me. Pray in the Spirit at all times and in all occasions for all believers everywhere. Pray. If we're going to be effective in our mission, we are going to have to understand that it is a spiritual battle that calls for spiritual weapons. So now we're going to come to the practical aspect where I just kind of give you a little bit of clear, hopefully, direction about how you can apply what you've heard today so that it makes an immediate difference in your life so that your life will be better and you will be better at life because you have been here today. Next time you encounter difficulty, opposition, a struggle, or a battle, what was the Apostle Paul's application? It was to pray. How about if the first thing that you did was not try to finagle something, not make a call, not try to talk somebody into or out of something, not see if you can throw money at a situation, not see if you can intervene and make things better. What if before you did any of that, maybe you'll do some of that, but what if your first instinct every time was to pray, to recognize, oh, this isn't about them. This is about what's going on in the unseen realm. So I need to get busy on my knees before God in prayer. That's my first instinct. I'll do some of that other stuff maybe, but what if that was my first instinct? How about when you encounter opposition and we defined anger before many times as a agenda that is blocked. When you see somebody who is blocking your agenda, and it might be a good agenda, a holy agenda, but that person is in the way. Rather than frustration, hatred, bitterness building up towards that person, what if you lift up your eyes and say, ultimately this isn't about them. There's a spiritual battle going on, so what do I need to do? I need to pray. I need, that's, that needs to be my first thing. And I don't have love for that person, but God loves them. And so I'm going to pray that God will love that person through me. Because I don't have it within me. I can't pull myself by my own bootstraps. I'm not wearing boots and they don't have straps. But you love that person. And so you can love that person through me. I'm going to pray. What if when you, when you need direction, rather than searching online or picking, buying another book, you turned your attention to the unseen realm and said, God, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I'm going to pray. What if that was our first and only instinct was to pray? Additionally, this ties in very nicely with what's coming up on our calendar, does it not? 
Uh, we have the Restore New England event that's coming up. And there, it's actually two parts. I've emphasized the prayer part, which happens on Friday night, but there's also a training part. Do you want to get good at talking about your faith, starting spiritual conversations, answering objections, just all that kind of stuff? There's actually going to be training about that on Saturday morning. So this is October the 14th. That evening, I would love it if everybody who considers themselves a part of Cornerstone as a church would show up here that night, 6.30. You can find out more information and you can register ahead of time, which will help the people that are organizing it because this is a all state thing uh, by going to cornerstonenh.org slash RNE, Restore New England. You'll find all that you need to know about it there and you'll be able to register as well. What if you could shift from being uncertain to being confident, to being confused and confusing, to being clear? What if you could go from holding back out of fear to stepping forward in confidence and with courage? What if every single one of us who consider ourselves a part of this church, what if every believer, what if every follower of Jesus, their first instinct was to pray and to fulfill their mission in the power of the Spirit? I think we would see renewal in our lives, in our churches, and in our region because there's a spiritual battle going on and we are on the winning side, the stronger side, the more powerful side. And sometimes it's just a matter of us being willing to turn to that source of power and do our part because he's ready to do his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is our desire to see renewal, to see new life, to see transformation. And you've told us how that happens and you've done everything that needs to be done in Jesus. So Lord, I pray that we would see that happen in our midst. Lord, again, I pray that you would give clarity to each one of us to know how this message hits for each one of us individually and then give us the courage, the boldness, the strength and power, the initiative to act accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.